1: Welcome back to the Equipping You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my friend, Dr. Kostenberger. Dr. Kostenberger, welcome back to the Equipping You Grace podcast,
0: sir. Yeah, it's good to talk to you today, Dave. Thanks so much for uh, having me on.
1: Yeah, it's great to, great to always chat with you, brother. Well, can you uh, catch us up on what's happening in your life, marriage, ministry, and what uh, ministry projects you're working on?
0: Yeah, uh, I'm on sabbatical this year, and uh, I've been working on my biblical theology uh, together Together with my Old Testament collaborator, uh, Greg Goswell, who teaches in Sydney, Australia. So that's been uh, fun. And I'm also gearing up to write a new John commentary in Lexham's uh, EEC series, uh, and, you know, on a personal note, being on sabbatical has been very refreshing. It's given me the opportunity to spend more time with my wife and and with our four children as well, most of whom uh, live in the area.
1: Oh, so wonderful. I'm, I'm glad that you have that time. And I, I know our listeners are excited about your John commentary. You have written okay. prolifically on John's gospel and so hopefully so excited for that, brother. Okay. Yeah. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about this book, Invitation to Biblical Interpretation, Exploring the the hermeneutical triad of history, literature, and theology. It's the second edition. Why Mm -hmm. you wrote it and how you hope it'll be received or is being received.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, ever since my... Uh, my studies for my MDF, my Master of Divinity, I've, I've had a deep conviction that hermeneutics is is so important, especially for teachers of the Bible and church leaders, but really for every Christian. You know that uh, Paul wrote to Timothy shortly before uh, Paul was martyred in uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, and that's, that's one of my life verses. Uh, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, the worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling uh, the word of truth. Uh, And I think among other things, that verse tells us that those who study and teach God's word will be held accountable by God on the final day for the way in which they handled uh, God's word. And so uh, our prayer ought to be that we won't need to be ashamed on that day. Now, uh, how do we rightly handle God's word? Uh, Many approaches to hermeneutics are a bit confusing and complicated, at least in my experience. Um, and so what I've tried to do in Invitation to Biblical Interpretation is to streamline the process as much as possible uh, by what I call the hermeneutical triad, uh, namely history, literature, and theology. And so I, I, I try to show how for any given genre of scripture, we will do well to study the historical and cultural setting, uh, to trace the literary flow or you know argument in case of letters, and also to do the needed uh, linguistic work in the original languages. And then uh, third, and and most importantly, uh, identify the theological message of that passage. And, you know, the way I, I ground that in hermeneutical theory is that as interpreters, when you think about it, Dave, we are confronted with three realities. Uh, there's a text to be interpreted, uh, that's literature. That text has come down to us as part of a particular historical setting, a history. And that text ultimately has God as its author. It's been given to us by divine revelation, and that's theology. And of course, that's, a distinctively uh, Christian evangelical approach. Uh, I realize not everyone would agree that, that Scripture is actually uh, inspired by God, but I would certainly argue that that is what Scripture itself uh, teaches. Now, uh, the, the first edition, which I think you may have mentioned was published uh, 10 years ago, um, it's been very encouraging. It's It's been met with a very warm uh, reception both in the United States and also in, in many other parts of the world. It's been translated into to uh, Portuguese and, uh, and possibly other languages. And many have found it helpful to adopt that simple triadic approach to studying scripture that forms the backbone of the book. So it, it, it seemed appropriate to update the book, to keep the information current, uh, for a new generation of students. Wonderful.
1: Uh, that's, uh, that's really, it, this is an absolute critical subject. And, um, uh, I know you, but when we were, before you're recording, you mentioned some other resources that are going to come out with, uh, this on this book do you can you uh, please tell us yeah, about absolutely. those resources uh, yeah.
0: so uh you know we really want this to be a helpful uh, textbook for for uh, courses on the subject and so uh, we try to make it as uh, easy for teachers as we can to to use the book and so uh, on my website biblical foundations.org if you go to the resource tab on top and then uh click on supplementary resources and then uh, there you will see the an image of the cover of the book look. And and, and and what do you find there is uh, as a teacher, uh, there's a syllabus shell, there's a chapter quizzes, uh, There are there's a set of PowerPoints um, and uh, there's an updated bibliography. Uh, and uh, in September, uh, there'll also be a, a laminated four page fold out chart of the core contents of the book. And so what we're hoping is that all of that will make it even easier to use the book in the classroom. So thanks so much for uh, asking that. That, but, but we really have a heart uh, for uh, teachers to use that book to equip a new generation of students to interpret the Bible more faithfully and more accurately. Wonderful, brother. Wonderful. Well, you know,
1: you've mentioned now that this is the second edition to this book. Uh, what what uh, additions have you made to this uh, second edition?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, working on a second edition is always very exciting because it gives you an opportunity to incorporate helpful feedback you receive from teachers and students students who have used the book, and also there are inevitably portions that you feel you could present even more clearly and helpfully uh, in the benefit of a hindsight and further teaching experience and study. Uh, so uh, for the second edition, I commissioned uh, b- b- world-class scholar Gregory Goswell, who teaches in Sydney, Australia, to write a fresh new chapter uh, on the Old Testament canon, uh, which is a very exciting and important addition to the book. Uh, I also radically worked the concluding chapter on teaching or preaching and applying the Bible. I, I wrote uh, half of the chapter on application completely from scratch and uh, broke down application genre by genre. So now there are discussions of how to apply the Psalms, how to apply parables, how to apply prophecy and apocalyptic, uh, and so forth. Um, also brought the material on preaching up to the latest standard. Uh, there's a lot of, of, of great uh, developments going on uh, in the area of preaching. I'm not an expert in that area, so I, I asked my my good friend uh, Abraham Curavilla uh, uh, to, uh, well, I consulted the many of, of the excellent resources that he has provided, books he's written, and and, and he's kind enough to look over the, the chapter and made some helpful in, uh, suggestions for improvement. Uh, I did something similar with the uh, chapter on history, where I have some detailed information on chronology, biblical chronology and archaeology, uh, and that uh, I uh, I consulted with world-class experts in the field of chronology, uh, Andrew Steinman and Roger Young. So uh, all the dates have been carefully uh, reviewed and 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 brought up to the latest uh, standard of scholarship. And uh, finally, I significantly expanded the chapter on theology, and uh, I wrote a new discussion of the relationship between biblical and systematic theology, as well as a treatment of the role of the law in the life of a believer. Something that I've spoken to students about, and sometimes that creates some some questions or even some confusion. Um, and of course, for the entire book, I updated all the bibliographic information, added many uh, new resources that have appeared in the course of the last decade of, of scholarship. Uh, so, you know, I would highly recommend that even those listeners who already have the first edition to get the this new one as it is a very significant and thorough update
1: wonderful brother well i think this is a really helpful volume um for all the reasons that you said and excited to jump in here to further the conversation um thank you can you mm -hmm, yes sir can you uh, please give us one or two practical examples of how the hermeneutical triad works when interpreting an old older new testament passage
0: yeah well uh one example i like to use uh when people ask me uh you know to illustrate how the trial, uh, tr- the triad works in practice is the book of Esther because it's such a well told story and such an integral part of, of salvation history. Uh, the story starts in verse one uh, of the book, just the opening uh, phrase of the book, uh, by saying, Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, also known as Xerxes, uh, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. So immediately, uh, the biblical writer gives uh, the historical setting. And for us, the, the question uh, arises, who is this Persian ruler? When did he reign? Uh, and uh, fortunately, uh, we're able to determine uh, on the basis of biblical chronology and extra biblical records as well, that, that he reigned from uh, uh, 486 to 465 BC, about a uh, you know 20-year span, uh, middle of the 5th century BC. And at this point, I think you should ask yourself, how does this intersect with biblical history, right? Uh, so, uh, in in both Second Chronicles and Ezra, uh, so we don't even have to go outside the Bible. We learn that uh, there was an earlier Persian ruler who's probably even better known than Xerxes, a man by the name of Cyrus, uh, issued a decree in 539 BC that allowed the Jewish people to return to their homeland. Uh, the famous decree of decree of Cyrus after the Babylonian exile, and uh, as you know, some. Did, and the temple was rededicated uh, in uh, 516 BC, as we learn in Ezra and Haggai and other uh, Old Testament books. But, but here we are uh, in the book of Esther about half a century later. And the Jewish people, uh, the book of Esther talks about, are still in Persia. Uh, so as we locate the place of the book in world history and in biblical history, uh, we see that the book takes place a couple decades before Nehemiah rebuilds to all Jerusalem in 444 BC. And uh, we also learn from the book of Esther itself, that it was essentially written to give the background to the Feast of Purim, uh, the Purim Feast, Uh, and of course, Purim, uh, as it mentions in Esther 9.24, means lots, uh, because they cast lots in the book, Uh, and we know that that first Purim Feast was celebrated in 473 BC, and then 15 years later, Ezra would return, so really the book is surrounded by important events in biblical history, Uh, Clearly, we need to do a homework here. Like it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, we need to be workers um, uh, in order to understand uh, where and when the book um, was written and and when the events in the book take place. Um, And also we see that there are important connections with earlier leaders in Israel. Such as Joseph or Moses. So uh, that Esther is presented as a deliverer of the Jewish people, like those earlier deliverers in Israel's history. Uh, Now, so much for history, and you can tell there's quite a bit of history to be studied. Uh, When it comes to literature, uh, the book is a story of a series of banquets. First, uh, there's the opening banquet at which uh, Queen Vashti is deposed, which opens the door for Esther to eventually replace her. And uh, subsequently, we we read of multiple additional banquets uh, culminating in the exposure of wicked Haman and uh, the uh, liberation of the Jews from the terrible threat of extinction. Uh, Finally, in terms of theology, uh, strikingly, as you know, God is never explicitly mentioned in the book, but we see his hand of providence behind the scenes in a series of remarkable apparent coincidences. Uh, So the message of the book is that people such as Esther or Mordecai must take courageous action, but God is still working behind the scenes, uh, keeping his promises, uh, preserving his people.
1: Oh, that's, that's really, really helpful, brother. Very, very helpful. Um, you know, I think one of the things people find most interesting in Bible study is discovering the whole historical cultural background of the Bible. And I know when I'm teaching the Bible and I mention something about that, they're like, oh, well, you know, I never really considered that um, or I didn't know that. And that really helps them, you know, understand the text. So how important is it that we have a good understanding of the historical cultural background of the particular passage? Or the chapter we're studying when we interpret the biblical text.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's, I agree with you. I think it's very important. And I've already tried to illustrate that a minute ago, you know, looking at the book of Esther. Uh, today, uh, I think you realize many disparage the study of history, uh, even in our circles, when it comes to biblical interpretation, I think in part uh, it's because people reject uh, this historical critical approach in which scholars reject uh, the historical claims of the Bible but I would argue we don't want to you know throw the baby out with the bathwater uh, historical criticism is essentially skeptical and often biased especially when it comes to miracles including the resurrection but uh, i would argue we still need to do historical research we we just need to do it more responsibly and uh, not based on questionable anti-supernaturalistic presuppositions so let me maybe give you an example uh, this time from the new testament in in, in john's gospel uh, for example uh, we have both a wedding and a funeral, the wedding, of course, uh, at Cana in chapter two, and then the funeral, the, uh, the burial of Lazarus, of course, he turns out to, to be raised by Jesus at the end of that chapter, probably my favorite, uh, you know, narrative in, in any of the Gospels. Um, and so I would say it certainly helps us to know something about Jewish weddings and funerals, you know, in the first century, in interpreting those passages. Some of that is in the text. Uh, But, you know, some additional information we can glean from extra biblical sources as well. Now, I realize not everyone can do their own historical research, uh, but there's so many excellent tools out today, uh, solid study Bibles, such as the ESV Study Bible or other reference works. Uh, One that just came out is the the Baker Illustrated Bible Background Commentary, edited by my friends uh, Scott Duvall and uh, Danny Hayes. So uh, I think uh, all of us, uh, if we care to take the time and make the effort, have an abundance of, of helpful resources is to help us in the task of, of uh, you know studying the bible uh historically and, and doing so uh you know in an informed uh you know and helpful way
1: yeah i think this is uh really a good and a thing that you just said you know taking it maybe a little further i know we've talked about gender and marriage and you know when we come to those particular passages like first timothy two which i know we've yeah. talked about and other things in the past but i mean you you have people that would just say that you know the culture for example of that day uh it doesn't make a one-to-one apples to orange kind of you know comparison and but when you actually you know dig into the text or other mm-hmm. texts about that or other things what you find is actually the opposite that uh you know paul for example upholds the dignity of women and that's mm-hmm. why you know the christian churches you know held the uh, held in women in high esteem not in terms of pastors or preachers or anything like that but we've restored dignity to women whereas in the ancient world yeah. they they didn't have any of that they didn't have any rights they weren't able to mm-hmm. really participate in society and get an education and so um those kind of things are really um you know that kind of illustrates even further what you're what you're yeah. saying and what we're yeah. talking about here
0: it's true dave and if i may add just one more thought on on that very point you just made. Made when it comes to you know uh, using historical background information in in interpretation, I think it's a really important, uh, but but uh, you know an issue that calls for discernment because uh, I want our listeners to be to be careful not 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 every. Uh, background, you know, piece of information that is adduced by someone is necessarily accurate or relevant, you know, so it's not just to do any kind of historical work, we need to do the right kind and, and the, the responsible kind. I think often, as, as you hinted at that there's maybe some sort of an agenda driven use of historical background information that you use it either to, to set aside what the text is clearly saying or to, you know, to relativize it uh, just by an appeal to some alleged practice in the contemporary culture at the time. So I would say, you know, we really need to be careful and, 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 and and have discernment to to make sure that uh, the background that is being adduced doesn't set aside the text because the text needs to remain our final, uh, you know, authority, uh, and 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 I'm very leery of anyone who uses alleged background information to set aside the clear message of the text itself.
1: Amen, brother. Me too, for sure, yeah. for sure. That's a good word. Very important. You know what? What guidance do you have for biblical interpreters on using the languages and sharing that language study on a on a passage in a sermon, an article, or in a book? If if I can just kind of maybe illustrate that for just a quick second here, you know, I know uh, you're. Your, your one of your mentors, DA Carson, you know, talks about that. So I have that kind of in mind, you know, just being, you know, mindful and careful of using the text in a or the, the language study in a responsible way. Exactly.
0: Uh yeah, I, I think as I'm sure you do as well, I believe there's great benefit in learning the languages of the Bible. Uh, Greek and Hebrew, uh, as uh, certain things are uh, almost impossible to convey in translation. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, saying that I, I realize this may not always be possible. So uh, you know, sometimes the challenges uh, in hermeneutics books is, do you write that book for people who know uh, Greek and Hebrew or or do you want to have a broader audience, you know, even including people who, who uh, maybe, you know, use tools but don't necessarily uh, know Greek and Hebrew itself? Uh, The way we address that in our book is we have two entire chapters, uh, 12 and 13, that deal with the importance of context and the meaning of words, uh, syntax, and uh, semantics, respectively. And there we do take the time to discuss uh, important issues in biblical Greek and Hebrew, even for people who don't know the languages. We want them to at least understand what the issues are, uh, such as the Greek verb. There's a lot of uh discussion among scholars about you know uh if if greek uh verbs are primarily time uh oriented or if they're more uh oriented toward the perception of a given action uh you know from a certain perspective what scholars call uh Greek aspect. Uh, so we we address that issue. Uh, we talk about the Greek article. Um, the, the the question, you know, there's not a uh, perfect, uh, as you know, one-to-one correspondence between uh, the Greek definite article and the English definite article. Uh, so you know, how do we how do we know if uh, if the presence of an article conveys a maybe a definite um, uh, place or or person or if if maybe there's a difference in the way Uh, The article is used in the Greek and in the English. Also, we talk about the genitive case. Uh, Dan Wallace, in in one of his books, identifies 32 different kinds of genitive And, uh, you know, clearly the question is, okay, now, which one of those uh, are we dealing with here? You know, is it subjective or objective? Is it, you know, a whole, is it qualitative? Is it, you know, any any number of, of uh, instances? And it, it makes a difference. Uh, uh, the Greek participle, um, where we talk about Hebrew syntax and uh, word order. Now... As to your question, you know, how to handle it in the pulpit or when, say, leading a Bible study, um, you know, my advice typically is to be careful not to uh, erect uh, even without intending to uh, a barrier between us and our listeners. So I, I personally practice kind of a light touch, maybe just either not mentioning anything about Greek or Hebrew and just talking about what, the passage says if properly interpreted or i might refer to the original language or something like that and also as you know uh, we got to remember that scholars don't always agree uh, even those who know greek and hebrew so uh, knowing the biblical languages will not solve all our interpretive issues which calls for modesty and humility i believe yeah uh,
1: quite, well, a comment with a question do you think that uh maybe for our listeners who are listening and they're they're tracking with us and they're you know very interested in this particular subject, and let's say they're you know pastors or bible teachers um do you think that for them in a in a sermon then that they could just say, "You know this word means this, and maybe they Maybe not, um, you know, saying what the that word is, you know, like from like pronouncing right. the Greek or whatever, but just saying like what this word means. You think that's a
0: a good thing? I think it's helpful because we just want to help our people understand the Bible better. You know, not necessarily parade our own Bible knowledge, or uh, and I know that's not uh, necessarily the case or the motive when people do that, but I think. Uh, even if it's not intentional that sometimes may be the effect that it it, it somehow you know maybe uh, almost uses that or could use that as a bit of a um of of a way of of precluding any further discussion and uh um so i think it's it's better for us to just uh, keep it uh, general and to to, to relate to people, basically, uh, you know, as being on the same level as us, rather than making it look like we have some sort of an issue in the whole, because we know Greek or Hebrew.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good word. Very important. Uh, what general guidelines would you set
0: before pastors and Bible teachers as they aim to apply God's word in, uh, to the life of God's people? Well, that's really the most important question, isn't it? Not just to interpret, but to then apply it to our own lives, and then to help others do the same. Uh, and, you know, I really agonized over the final happen in our book because I felt such a burden to do a good job at that because that's really uh, ultimately what it's all about. You know, if you just know how to interpret scripture, but then fail to apply it to your life and and show the practical relevance of the biblical teaching, I mean, what have you really accomplished? So in the end, I, I would really recommend that that listeners, if they're at all interested, get uh, the book, Invitation to Biblical Interpretation, and, and read chapter uh, 15 in its entirety, because it's obviously impossible for you and I here to cover everything in detail. But one of my favorite sections in the book is where we talk about uh, common fallacies in preaching uh, from uh, different genres. Just because I've seen these fallacies committed numerous times, probably have committed them a few times myself, and so I I wish preachers would would heed those cautions. So. so uh, you know, don't preach parables as if, they, as if they were historical narratives, and and don't preach wisdom literature, uh, such as proverbs, as as laws. You know, don't let's not preach uh, apocalyptic as historical narratives, and and so on. Also, I'm I'm a very strong advocate of biblical theological preaching. You know, sometimes when we engage in expository preaching, which is very commendable, we uh, we may simply go through a passage phrase by phrase, line by line, but but never explain how a given book is tied in with the larger story of the Bible, uh, major themes in the Bible, and the rest of the canon. Uh, but it's so important that we help our people understand uh, the implications of a book being in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and uh, whether we're dealing with a gospel or a letter. When it comes to uh, a gospel, for example, the gospels still deal with a transition period in the history of salvation prior to the giving of the Spirit so Uh, I believe we can't take everything that happens as normative uh, for the church age. Even with the book of Acts, we're still dealing with a period prior to the completion of the New Testament canon. So I can't assume everything in the book is normative for believers today. And with regard to letters, each of the New Testament letters were originally written to address a particular church and set of circumstances. So we need to keep these things in mind uh, in order to make appropriate application today. But again, and like I said, you'll really have to get the book and read the chapter on preaching and application to get the full benefit of what I'm trying to say here.
1: Yeah, I think that's good. I think what I hear you saying, and probably our listeners as well, is you need to let the the text dictate uh, whatever that is—narrative, letter, etc.—dictate uh, mm-hmm. what, how, what you're how you're going to interpret it. You know, um, mm-hmm. rather than okay, well, I'm just coming to whatever I have one grid of interpretation for uh, parables and the same interpretation for Revelation and Daniel. Uh, you know, that that doesn't really work, right? It's it's true
0: this is not this is not original with us but I think most uh, good books on hermeneutics uh, spend a lot of time on interpreting the different biblical genres in our case I think seven of our 15 chapters you know almost exactly half of them uh, deal with just interpreting a given genre of scripture just because that's just so important and you just can't interpret wisdom literature the same way as you know prophecy or historical narrative so so a lot of the hard work of interpretation you know and the accurate work will, will take place here. Wonderful, brother.
1: Well, I know you love this question, so I'll tee it up for you and let you hit a home run here. Uh, how important is a good understanding of biblical theology to biblical interpretation?
0: Well, you're right. Uh, I love that question. I don't know if I mentioned, but I'm, I'm working on a biblical theology myself right now. It's a kind of a three-year uh, capstone project, and and I think even uh, with regard to hermeneutics and, and, and uh, And preaching and teaching uh, biblical theology can be so important. I just finished uh, teaching a class on on biblical theology on the last day. I just uh, opened it up for students to share what they learned. And and there were several students who mentioned how, uh, in some ways, really life-changing, you know, learning more about biblical theology was for their preaching. Uh, and that was so encouraging to actually make a, a real life impact, you know, that it's, biblical theology is not just an academic discipline. Uh, it, it's very relevant to the way we uh, we communicate uh, spiritual truth um, in God's word. Now, essentially, I think at the heart, uh, and there's so much we could say about biblical theology, but at the heart, it involves drawing interbiblical connections with other texts in scripture. Uh, especially uh, regarding the New Testament used to the Old Testament. Uh, as you know, the uh, the authors of the New Testament were steeped in Scripture, which in their case was the Old Testament, uh, including Jesus. So knowing the Old Testament background of a given New Test- Testament passages is absolutely vital to accurate interpretation. And I would say... Uh, Rather than quoting isolated texts, the New Testament authors often tap into an entire narrative. So we need to be thoroughly conversant with the storyline of Scripture as well with indiv- as uh, with individual narratives. I would say, if any of our listeners want to become more knowledgeable and skilled in this area of biblical theology, I would recommend they get the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, edited by. Uh, Greg Beal and Don Carson. And they may also want to get a hold of, it's a little bit more advanced, but I think it's it's, it's a fascinating book I read recently very thoroughly, uh, Richard Hayes' book, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, which is just fascinating in its treatment of the use of uh, intertextuality, which is the study of uh, interrelationships between Old and New Testament texts. Uh, Or, of course, uh, they can, uh, you know, our listeners can just read the chapter in biblical theology and in an invitation uh, to biblical interpretation, which is uh, chapter 14.
1: Very good, brother. Very good.
0: Well, where can people go to
1: find out more about your work online, either on social media or otherwise, brother?
0: Yeah, I'd love to uh, keep in touch. You know, um, they can go to my personal website, biblicalfoundations.org, where they can uh, find many, many resources, including entire courses on, on various biblical topics, of course, primarily the ones that... That I've written on and particularly interested in including marriage and the family gospel of john uh, pastoral epistles and and so forth uh, on the website too are links to uh, podcasts and blogs and and you can search the entire site easily by by topic also as the director of the center for biblical studies at midwestern i head up uh, their website which is uh, cbs.mbds.edu uh, which includes um book notices on new publications in biblical studies, and podcasts uh, with leading biblical scholars such as Greg Beale, Don Carson, uh, Tom Schreiner, Bob Yarbrough, uh, many, many others. Uh, Finally, people can follow me on Twitter at uh, A. Kostenberger. uh, uh, And increasingly, what I've found is, I'm sure other authors would agree, that uh, my author page on Amazon is really well done and links to over 50 books I've uh, written, edited, or translated, or contributed to in some other way.
1: Wonderful, brother. Wonderful. I encourage our listeners to pick up your other books. Uh, You'll be, you guys will be blessed uh, as I have. So, um, you know, Dr. Kostenberger, there's a lot that we could talk about this topic. And uh, thank you so much for this fascinating and very practical uh, conversation. I I just want to urge our listeners to check out Dr. Kostenberger's invitation to biblical interpretation, exploring the hermeneutical triad of history, literature, and theology. This is the second edition, guys, as well as his uh, um, other publications. Uh Dr. Kostenberger, my friend, thank you so much for your time today, for your ministry. Um, I'm thankful to our Lord for you and pray Christ's blessings on you.
0: Likewise, Dave. Uh thank you and, and please upkeep the, the faithful work that you're doing as well. Thank you so much, brother.